and then we leave the passage in between. I will preach on that passage this coming Sunday, the Lord willing. And then also from the verses 19 through 23 is part of the text this morning. So let's read those verses. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then the verses 19 through 23. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Thus far the reading from God's word. After the singing, or after the sermon, we will sing from hymn 20, the stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, and that includes you boys and girls, do you like this time of the year? Most people do. It's a festive time. It's fun. It's a time when many people decorate the outside and the inside of their homes with lights and Christmas trees. In the malls and on the airwaves, we hear the sound of Christmas songs. It is the time of the year that friends and family come together. There are office parties. Most people have some time off from work or school. There is good food and drink around. Children get presents and get to see many of their friends and cousins and aunts and uncles. For many, this is a wonderful time of the year. But what is exactly the reason for the celebration? Well, you know what that is. You little children know what that is as well. That is because at this time of the year, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And that is also what most people of the world will tell you. But is that really why everybody celebrates? Originally, this time of the year was not a religious holiday. Even before Christ was born, people from all over the world celebrated at this time of the year because the last days in December marked the end of the days growing shorter and darker. In January, the days become longer again. And that was the original reason for the celebration. 
After the birth of Christ, the church wanted to do away with those pagan celebrations and therefore appropriated those festive pagan activities by making this time of the year a remembrance of the birth of Christ. It didn't matter that Christ was actually not born at this time of the year, for he was most likely born sometime in spring in the month of April. Nevertheless, the church imposed this holiday on the rest of the world, or actually superimposed it upon those pagan festive activities. Now, today, many Christian churches continue to do that. They continue to want to impose this holiday as a celebration of the birth of Christ upon others. They're very upset when they see large retail stores such as Costco and Walmart not embracing this this holiday wholeheartedly as a Christian holiday. They will even threaten to picket and to boycott their businesses unless they too get on the bandwagon. The world, however, has never really embraced this as a significant day because of the birth of Christ. For ultimately, this world wants nothing to do with him. And you know, that's the way it has always been. And that's also the way it was during the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And there we see the forces of darkness at work. We see how Satan wants to do everything in his power to prevent that baby Jesus from accomplishing his task here on earth. Most people are in the grip of Satan. The people do not want him. When the old man Simeon addressed Joseph and Mary in the temple about their newborn son, he spoke about the many wonderful things about this child. He would be the salvation in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of the people Israel. But he also said something else to Mary, his mother. He said to her, as we know from Luke 2, verse 35, and a sword will pierce your heart also. Why would a sword pierce the heart of Mary? Because of the hatred of the world against that baby Jesus. When the Lord Jesus was born, he was born into a world full of hostility. And make no mistake about it, that hostility is still there today. But nevertheless, the Lord God continues to have Scripture fulfilled. The world could not stop the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. They could not stop his first coming. They could not stop him from completing his mission. And they cannot stop his second coming either. For the scriptures will be fulfilled. The Lord Jesus came some 2,000 years ago to the earth. But he is going to come again. He will come again so that the scriptures can continue to be fulfilled. And that's what I will preach to you about this morning. I will preach to you about the fulfillment of scripture concerning Jesus' flight to Egypt and return to Nazareth 
and then we will look at the flight to Egypt first of all and then secondly the return to Nazareth. In Matthew 2 we read that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him to take the child and his mother to Egypt. He was to stay there until he is told to unless he is told otherwise. He is also told why he has to go to Egypt. He has to go there because Herod is going to search for the child and to kill him. Why would Herod have such a hatred over against that child? Well, Herod is obsessed with power. He is king over many parts belonging to Israel. He is king of Judah, of Galilee, Ituria, and Trachonitis. And Herod does not want any competition. When the wise men from the east come to inquire of him where the Christ is to be born, he sends them to Bethlehem and tells them that if they find him to bring him word so that he too may worship this child. But once he discovers that the wise men leave the country without notifying him, he becomes very angry. He had no intention to worship this child. What did he want to do? He wanted to destroy it. He did not want anyone challenging his position. In order to make sure that the child does not survive, he orders that all the children in Bethlehem, two years or younger, be killed. And so Joseph took Mary and the child during the night and left for Egypt. Now you may wonder, why Egypt? Why not another country such as Babylonia or Persia, one of the other nations surrounding Israel? And some commentators are of the opinion that Egypt was the most logical choice because it was closest to Bethlehem. Furthermore, there were already lots of Jews who lived in Egypt at that time, and therefore it is likely that Joseph and Mary had relatives and friends already staying there as well. And in this way, Mary and Joseph would have support during their stay in Egypt. However, is that the real reason why they went to Egypt? No. Verse 15 gives us the real reason. Namely, to fulfill what was said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. That prophecy had to be fulfilled. But you may say, isn't that somewhat strange? Why would the lives of Mary and Joseph and the Lord Jesus have to be upset in this way so that scripture could be fulfilled? Why is it so important? And Joseph and Mary would face many other hardships, and so would the Lord Jesus. Why also add that hardship to go to Egypt to fulfill the scriptures? Well, brothers and sisters, it is extremely important that Scripture be fulfilled. For that is why the Lord Jesus came to earth in the first place. He came to fulfill Scripture. Already in paradise, right after the fall into sin, the promise of a Redeemer was made. Throughout the Old Testament, His coming is predicted. 
And on Christmas Day, that wonderful prophecy was fulfilled. And now during his whole life on earth, those prophecies that pointed to his coming have also come true. And also all the things that was promised that he would do already in the Old Testament was fulfilled. There's a lot of symbolism in those prophecies. They make us understand why he had to come so that we can reflect on these things. The fact that he had to go to Egypt and to return from there was a very important prophecy for many reasons. First of all, look at the significance of that quotation. Matthew actually quotes from Hosea, from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where it states that he would be called out of Egypt, or that Israel would be called out of Egypt, her firstborn son. Now, why does Hosea state that at that particular time in the history of redemption? Well, as you know, more than any other book in the Bible, Hosea shows the love of God's people, shows how God loves his people. For you all know what the book of Hosea is all about. It's about the relationship of God and his people as symbolized in in the relationship of Hosea with his unfaithful wife, Gomer. Israel is like Gomer. Israel, like Gomer, has been unfaithful to the Lord God. Israel did not take God's commandments seriously. Israel went after the idols of the world. And Israel did that throughout their history. In spite of her horrible sin, however, the Lord God continues throughout the ages to remain true to his covenant promises. Oh, sure, he would send his people into exile, from which the majority would not return. But he did allow a remnant to come back to the promised land, who would rebuild Jerusalem, and most importantly, who would rebuild the temple. The Lord God did not turn his back on his nation. He continued to gather her throughout the ages. And so Hosea 11 verse 1 reminds Israel how the Lord God has dealt with them throughout the ages. And how he has loved them. Out of Egypt I called my son. What a role the country of Egypt has played in the history of the redemption of God's people. God calls his people out of that godless nation. He rescues them from their slavery. For the Lord God commanded Moses to go to Pharaoh and to tell him to let the people of Israel go. The Lord said to Moses, as we read in Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23, Then say to Pharaoh, oh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. And the Lord God did rescue his people from the land of Egypt, even though Pharaoh would not cooperate. 
for he loved his firstborn son. And now then, why does Matthew quote this passage of Hosea, and Hosea refers back to that time in the history of God's people? Well, because he wants to show that Christ and the nation Israel are identified with each other. Do you remember how the nation Israel ended up in Egypt? Well, most of you do. Also, the children in this congregation, no doubt, are aware why they ended up in Egypt. It was actually because of sin. They ended up there because Joseph's brothers, who represented the tribes of Israel, had sold Joseph into slavery. And that was a very evil thing that those brothers did. And that's also what Joseph says himself in Genesis 50, verse 20. After he identified himself to his brothers, he said, As for you, you meant evil against me. But then he adds in the same breath, But God meant it for good. It was a very evil thing that those brothers of Joseph did. And because of that sin, the Israelites remained for 400 years in that land of Egypt. And now we see here in Matthew that Christ also has to go to Egypt. Not because of his own sin, but again because of the sin of Israel. Because of the sin of his people. It was prophesied that Christ would come to bear the sin of all believers. And that is why he too had to go there. It was a great humiliation for him. He, the king of Israel, the son of God, is turfed out of his own country. He is not saved in his own country because of the reality of sin all around him. But that was not the only reason that he had to go to Egypt. For the Lord wanted to turn the evil of his own people to their good. Joseph also understood that. And the people have to understand that. And the Lord God does turn that to, his, to their good. For, first of all, we can see that with regard to the patriarchs. It was in Egypt that they could find escape. At one point, Abraham went to Egypt because of starvation. And he found relief there. And so did Jacob and his sons. That's how they ended up discovering where Joseph was. They went to Egypt because of the drought in the land elsewhere. God wants to preserve his people even if he has to use a heathen nation to do so. And in the same way, he wants to preserve his own son. The Lord Jesus and his parents had to find safety in the land of Egypt. And God provides that for them there. But Christ, just like Abraham and Israel herself, could not remain in Egypt. He had to go back to his own country. However, Christ's return from Egypt did not mean that now he is no longer in danger. Oh, sure, the immediate danger is gone, 
but the world is still out to destroy him. And therefore, when the Lord Jesus does return to his own country, then we cannot speak yet of the liberation, as was the case with Israel when that nation came out of Egypt. The Israelites were set free from bondage. But when Christ returns to his homeland, that was not the case for him. But he did survive. He had to fulfill his task here on earth. When the Lord Jesus returned from Egypt, he was still a little boy, and at the beginning of his humiliation, Herod is replaced by another oppressor. But even though Herod is dead, Christ is still not wanted in his own country. He is not only rejected by the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities, but he is rejected by the people themselves. He replaces one bondage for another. Brothers and sisters, when Christ came into the world, he came into a world full of sin and misery. He experienced sin and the effect of sin all around him, no matter where he was. And so we see that when he, even when he returns to Israel, he actually replaces one Egypt for another Egypt. For it is clear that in the scriptures, Egypt becomes to be symbolized as the place for sin. And that is why the introductory words to the ten words of the covenant begin with the words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Ultimately, that means that the Lord God has delivered us from the bondage to sin. And therefore, also in the book of Revelation, Egypt becomes another word for sin or the place of sin. Listen to what it says in Revelation 11 verse 8. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. The place of Christ's crucifixion in Jerusalem is described as Egypt. That is because Jerusalem and the rest of the nation Israel have become a place of sin, just like Egypt. It is a place of oppression. It is a place of bondage. And Christ also had to come out of that Egypt, out of that place of sin. He had to deliver man from sin. And only his death and his resurrection could accomplish that. Only after that can true redemption be found. Freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from pain, freedom from sorrow. And so the exodus from Egypt can only find its fulfillment by the cross and the resurrection. Christ's return from Egypt as a young child is only the beginning of that fulfillment. As we will see in our second point, a lot more needs to be done. Joseph receives another dream. And he is told this time that he must return to Palestine, for King Herod is now dead. Those who sought his life are no longer in power. But when Joseph is back in Israel, he finds out that things are not as safe as he first thought. For now he finds out that Archelaus is the new ruler. And Archelaus is even more cruel than his father Herod. Joseph had heard of his cruel and pagan ways. 
from history, we know that not so long before this, Archelaus had ordered a golden eagle to be erected over the great gate of the temple in Jerusalem. And to the Romans, the eagle had a great religious significance. For they identified Jupiter and Zeus, those pagan gods, with the eagle. And so by erecting that eagle, which was also the standard worn by the Roman soldiers, you may have seen that in those pictures that you see of Roman times, by erecting that eagle over the great gate of the temple, they tried to force their pagan religion upon the Jews. And so two young Jews were coached by two famous and prominent rabbis to pull down that eagle and to hack it to pieces. As a result, these two young men were sent to prison, and those two famous rabbis were put to death. But when the people, when the Jewish people heard about the death of those well-known rabbis, a great rebellion took place, and it took place at Passover time. What did Archelaus do? Well, he ruthlessly quelled that rebellion. And he did it in such a cruel manner that more than 3,000 people were killed, including many pilgrims attending the Passover. His cruelty, the cruelty of this Archelaus was so great that sometime after Joseph had settled in Nazareth, Archelaus was forcibly deposed in the ninth year of his reign because of complaints made against him directly to Rome. Joseph was warned of the cruelty of this man. And so what does he do? Instead of going to Bethlehem, he goes to Nazareth in Galilee. And there, another Herod reigned, Herod Antipas, who apparently had a milder nature than his father and his brother. And here again, we can see that the scriptures are being fulfilled as we read in verse 23. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Matthew speaks here about the fulfillment of a prophecy. But if you search the Old Testament, you will not find that exact quote anywhere in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the city Nazareth has never even been mentioned in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, let alone the word Nazarene. Did Matthew make a mistake? Of course not. We know that Matthew wrote his gospel through the Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit does not make any mistakes. And so what's the case? Well, when you look a little bit close, closer at this text, then you will understand what Matthew is saying. For Matthew does not refer to a single prophet, but he refers to prophets. He uses the plural. He is saying that all the prophets spoke of Christ, that he shall be called a Nazarene. And what did all the prophets say about the Christ? Well, they said that he would be despised, and that he would be held in low esteem, that he would be rejected, and that he would suffer many things. And now of all the cities in Israel, Nazareth was one of the most despised, especially among the strict Jews. Think 
of what Nathaniel said when he heard the words of the Lord Jesus. He said, as we know from John 1, verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was despised because it was different from the rest of Israel. The Nazarenes were like the Nufis of Canada. The rest of the country kind of ridiculed them. The people spoke with a funny accent. And since they were close to the trade routes of that day, that city had many connections with the outside world. And they picked customs completely alien to the traditional Jewish way of life. And therefore, anyone coming from Nazareth was viewed with suspicion and disdain. And so we see that in this way, the prophecy about Christ is once more fulfilled for he is despised as a Nazarene. In this way, the prophecy concerning him in Psalm 69 is fulfilled, as was the prophecy in Isaiah 53, verse 3, where it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. These things indicate to us that the young man Jesus of Nazareth is being prepared more and more for what lay further ahead for him. Christ's humiliation had to be complete in every respect. He could not be known as coming from Bethlehem, for Bethlehem is the city of David. Bethlehem is a royal city. Christ, instead, had to be known as a Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, a carpenter. And that is the humiliation that Christ had to bear. And here we see how Christ emptied himself of the honor and the glory that he originally had with the Father. He laid all his honor aside. But in the end, he would receive all his glory and honor back again. And that's also what he prayed for at the very end of his life. In his high priestly prayer, he prayed to the Father, as we know from John 17, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory which I had with you before the world was made. Why could he pray that at that time? Well, he could do so because he allowed himself to be humbled totally. And he who is humbled will be exalted. And you know, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, the same thing is true for every Christian. A Christian must not be afraid of being humiliated by the world or even by his fellow believers. For the Lord will exalt you. Christ was totally obedient to his Father. He knew that his Heavenly Father would not reject him as men did. Men only look at the outward appearances, but God does not. What does God look at? God looks at our hearts whether we are truly willing to go where the Father will lead us. Christ will be known as the Nazarene. And therefore, in a sense, you and I will also be known as Nazarenes, for we are Christians. And so the disdain of the Nazarene is also placed in our lives. And that is especially the case if we do not go along with the world in the way that the world celebrates. Our celebration is different. It is more sober. It 
focuses on God and on His Word. It does not focus on the external things. It focuses on our sins and how we need to be redeemed from our sins. God has placed the enmity already shown in Genesis 3, verse 15, the the enmity of the seed of the woman and the seed of the servant. He has placed that also in our lives. But he does more than that. God also gives us the blessings of Christ. Satan will heap his scorn upon us, but Christ will heap his blessings on us. And you know what is greater. Is it not great to know that with Christ we also have the victory, that we have the victory over death? Christ's deliverance from the Egypt of sin means our deliverance from the Egypt of sin. God reveals to us his love through his Jesus of Nazareth, who fulfilled the scriptures, who fulfilled the prophecy, and that we would be redeemed from our sins. Brothers and sisters, God was true to his word. He promised that we would live because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as long as we believe, he will fulfill that promise for each and every one of us. Amen.